Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to Bonafide, Immigration for the Common Man. Our next guest on Bonafide is Norman Randolph-Jones III. Norman holds various leadership positions on Jamie's campus, including, but definitely not limited to, the outgoing student representative to the Board of Visitors, a student ambassador, as well as a member of the Xi Delta chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Love my first fam. Today, we'll be having a conversation revolving around politics within the immigration sphere. Hello, Mr. Jones. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm just completing this capstone project. Um, and I know you're also going through the same thing. So how's your work going? It's a process, um, but I'm glad to be going through it, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. So it's going good, ultimately. Good. Glad to hear that. So today you are here talking about politics and how that could potentially turn into advocating for immigration and things of that nature here on Bonafide Immigration for the Common Man. Are you excited? Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Glad to have you. All right, so on today's segment, the first question is, what do you know about immigration law? So that could be courts, um, cases, things like that. Like, what's your general understanding of it? Um, My general understanding of immigration and immigration law stems more from an implementation standpoint. Um, so just in short, I mean, I want to work in bureaucracy and public administration post-graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my understanding primarily stems in agencies, USCIS, mm-hmm. ICE, Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. How are we putting things together to make sure that we have secure borders, but we're also equitable and welcoming to people, um, which is a balance that is always being, well, not always, but I think certainly over the past 30, 40 years has been an emphasis for U.S. national policy. Um, so that's where my general understanding is. Some of the trends of immigration, mm-hmm. big topics. I'm certainly not a policy expert in this area, um, but I've also had some experience through internships to learn more about the naturalization process and some mm-hmm. of the document documentation it takes to go through um, the legal immigration process. Um, I would say that some of my less official um, understanding also comes from personal experience. Mm -hmm. I grew up in minority-majority high schools that were primarily Hispanic Mm -hmm. or Latino populations. Um, So immigration was not only a topic of the day when it came to people's lives and experiences, but Mm -hmm. also in our learning because it was important and it was applicable. So um, like I said, while it might not be incredibly detailed or specific, um, it's certainly been a topic that's been a part of my life since age 10. Um, so, and, and of course, my knowledge of politics and public administration has helped make that stronger. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Yeah. Um, so, I, for example, taking an administrative law course, mm-hmm. um, we didn't cover too many laws around immigration, um, but we did examine constitutional provisions as interpreted through the lens of immigration, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, Title Six and Seven in, um, what is it, the Civil Rights Act, I think? Or the Fourteenth Amendment. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But <clears throat> Title Six and Seven, which are essentially anti-discrimination laws, uh-huh. and how are they put into place through government agencies mm-hmm. um, implementation. Yeah. And so, when you look at that through an immigration lens, mm-hmm. um, you can look at that through policing. Yeah. Are we violating those titles mm-hmm. there? 
Um, when we look at facilities, are we making sure that we're preventing any sort of harassment or discrimination in, in those facilities? Yeah. Um, things of that nature. So again, it's kind of broad in general, but I would say I have a little more understanding than the average bear. Yeah, no, 100%. And with all the interviews that I've done this far, that's actually been, this is the first time that someone's looking at it from an aspect of policy or implementation. So that was, that's really interesting. Um, so given that, given the way that you grew up in um, the area that you lived in and stuff, do you, would you say that that has impacted your perception of it? Absolutely. Um, I've been more informed in my mm -hmm. time in college, but I don't think that makes me any more educated, mm -hmm. just educated in a different way. Um, so I'm from Northern Virginia, Manassas, Virginia in particular, which has a growing Hispanic Latinx population. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, both my middle school and high school were minority majority, um, overwhelmingly Hispanic, you know, at least 50, 60%. Mm -hmm. um, and so that certainly skewed my perception in the sense that I've been uh, more receptive to open immigration policy. Mm. Um, I think that's also in response to the policies that have actually been put in place. So um, it's a little bit of both. But yeah, having lots of friends from Guatemala, um, mm. Honduras, Venezuela, El Salvador, Mexico, um, knowing their stories, you know, meeting their parents, working with people who were un undocumented immigrants at that time and looking for refuge in a lot of places that, I mean, how can that not impact your, your view on immigration? Right. Um, so I would certainly say that had an impact on me. Okay. Um, so with that, um, what factors also impacted your perception of immigration? So like, do you get your immigration news from like social media or newspapers? Like where, where does that come from? I'd say, at least on a day-to-day -day basis, just admittedly, social media is a big informant right. of those views. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, everything is present on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook now. Um, so it's, it, it has more credibility than it did, say, even five years ago, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I, I think I might be different in the sense that I also, through other work that I do, spend a lot of time interfacing with students on our campus and having conversations about things that matter to them, things like the DREAM Act and is DACA being renewed. Mm -hmm. um, those are pertinent to college students at this time for matters of funding and campus inclusivity, all of that. So I think a lot of my information also comes from listening and learning to other students. Um, but those would be the two primary sources. Uh, social media is a really accessible and convenient way to learn. And then meeting other people and having conversations. Okay, so... What inspired your political aspirations? For me, um, I'd say it comes down to two things, primarily. The first is I have a passion for doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, that is a core value of mine. And the other is I'm a lifelong learner. I really like to learn. And so how do those tie into political aspirations? Okay. Um, long story short, and I'll explain a little bit, but I want to work in bureaucracy and public administration for some time and understand how laws and policies are implemented mm. um, okay. and use that to build a platform to run for office. Um, so I want to be essentially a bureaucrat turned politician. 
as opposed to the other way around or a career politician. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all based on the premise that I think it is much more impactful and effective Mm. to run for office um, and make laws, pass laws, knowing what it will take to have them impact people. Mm. I think it... It makes it makes very little sense. Yeah, it makes little sense to me to to put a bill on a table mm-hmm. and fight for it, and then it's something that's really really hard to, you know, to actually have an impact on people. Um, that's a really good idea. I mean, for me, like the the biggest example I think of is um, the Affordable Care Act, mm. which was such an uphill battle, um, yes. and it's just an example. I mean, to just get it passed yes. and get it through, mm-hmm. um, but then the rollout was even harder than people expected. <laughs> right. From a website crashing to unexpected, you know, premium increases mm-hmm. that are still going on. So I think having that experience with bureaucracy is more helpful because then I can put a bill on the table and also know that whichever agency or department it goes through, I know the basics of that process and how do we make sure that this budget cut really hits the school district we wanted to, or how do we make sure that um, this increase in funding for community development manifests in the way we want it to, whether that's green energy or parks and recreation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that stimulated my career, uh, my career interests, um, wanting to work in administration for some time and then run for office. Mm. And I mentioned uh, doing the right thing and learning as two core values in that career because, um, one, doing the right thing, I think it requires at least some sort of understanding of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean you have to know what's going to happen when it comes to making policy, but understanding how things affect people, um, their impacts, and trying to do the right thing all the way through, being very intentional, um, that is important. And that's also why I want to work in government in the first place. I want to do the right thing for others. Mm. Um, but then being a lifelong learner ties to the, specifically that portion about public administration. Um, I always want to know. I always want to learn. I'm a really curious person. I mm-hmm. like to ask a lot of questions. Um, and so by learning more and knowing more about government as a whole, from the elected side to the non-elected side, mm-hmm. I think that would help me marry the two in my, my career. So um, those are my aspirations. You know, We'll see if I'm governor one day. Who yes. knows? But. <laughs> Everybody vote for Norman Jones when the time comes. I promise you will not regret it. Literally, whatever platform he's running on, I'm voting. Because I know that he's going to do the right thing and do good things. So... Just vote for him. Um, yeah. Okay, so the next question is, what is your view on how politicians are handling immigration right now? Hmm. I think at a macro level, politicians are being more responsive to this as a topic, um, which is a good thing, I think. Um, for a while, um, like I said, certainly before the 80s and 90s, certainly the 90s, right? Um, In the early 2000s, of course. Immigration was not a hot topic in this way. Now, of course, that comes with the trend of um, Hispanic immigration into the United States and that sort of recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think overall, it has been good to see that people are talking about it. Um, And it is a mainstream issue. And it has been, you know, central to politicians, campaigns over the past for election cycles now. Um, what used to be the importance of like people's economic views, you know, everyone used to care. What does the president say about the economy? Immigration, in a lot of ways, has taken that, that spotlight. Um, and so that's, on a macro level, I'm optimistic because regardless of 
which view is being articulated. It's something that we're always talking about and always concerned about um, in one way or another. Um, but more specifically, I think politicians nowadays are, um, I think there's been too much focus on the symbolism around immigration mm-hmm. policy. That's so good, yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's been so much focus on the image of kids in cages mm-hmm. since 2016, 2015. Yeah. And it's a heartbreaking image because it's a heartbreaking reality. I mean, it, it's really... We should not have anyone in that kind of living environment, um, regardless of what they have done or, or how they got here. We have to treat people humanely. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, we allowed that to saturate our thoughts. And so from a political perspective, politicians are leaning on the images of immigration, whether they're for or against more open policies, um, as opposed to the actual policy behind it. Um, You know, a pathway for citizenship, I personally think, is really important and necessary. I think it makes a lot of sense to have that. But um, when it comes to the Biden administration, for example, being mindful of what does that entail? Mm, Yeah, Um, definitely. How are we going to make it uh, not legitimate, but practical, feasible? Um, Because we can say that we're going to give undocumented children a a 10-year pathway to citizenship. But from a, a... I mean, even from just a pure paperwork standpoint, right? How are we going to process these new applications and this new part of our American identity when we already have a 10, 20 year backlog when it comes to naturalization? Exactly. So that's just one example. But I think that there has to be more focus on cleaning up our immigration processes from an efficiency standpoint before Mm -hmm. we we can even take a, a view on whether or not we should do this or that. Because in either case... It's going to take too long to implement before, you know, before the next policy comes out, before the new DREAM Act comes out, before mm-hmm. DACA gets revisited again. I feel like that's likely to happen. Um, so I think a lot of politicians, in short, are caught up in the symbolism around immigration policy because it's a hot button topic. And politics right now has become so symbolic um, and image based. You know, we're looking for quotes and buzzwords and. We're starting to dig more into what people have done in their legacy. But even then, I don't know that we're always looking into the big picture. So I would hope that this new wave of politicians, both on the left and the right, mm-hmm. and you know the, the shifting center. And um, I think that I'm hopeful that they'll be more policy oriented and more grounded in implementation. I mean, like I said earlier, that's my goal for policy right. politics. Right. But I think that that would be a lot more helpful as opposed to what I've found to be a little more of the fickle riding the wind mm-hmm. legacy of politicians. Um, yeah. I, I, long story short, I just hope that we move away from the symbolism and look at you know the brass tacks, what's actually happening and what can we fix, um, what needs to be better. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, you know, the pandemic also gets in the way of that because there's an emergency that looms over everything. And it affects everything. I mean, when it comes to immigration policy, how do we get people in the country safely yeah. and in a healthy way now? Um, so that, that just adds a whole nother layer of complexity. So maybe we'll see a shift in politicians' messages after the pandemic. I don't know. But mm. um, overall, I think it's a little too symbolic. And I'd like to see a little more detail, um, you know, less fanfare around it and just starting to chip away. It's been a big issue for quite some time now. Okay, so I'm aware that you are an advocate for Black Lives on Jamie's campus in the community, especially 
um, within this past year that we've had, truly. So can you tell me a little bit about, more about that? Yeah. Um, I think my advocacy, um, it stems from my personal background. Um, so I identify as African-American or black. Um, both my parents are also black. But they attended JMU. They met here at the university um, back in the early 90s. And so I've spent the majority, if not all of my life, um, supporting JMU's black community as a volunteer. You know, my parents ran the black alumni chapter for about 10 years. Um, so I was selling t-shirts, you know, showing up to events, all that kind of stuff. Um, so in a lot of ways, I indirectly and behind the scenes was an advocate for our black alumni and by extension, our black students through those events and fundraising, things like that. Um, and I didn't realize my ties um, and my background in that area until I started becoming a student leader on campus. Mm. Um, you know, I was a part of SGA. I was actually awarded as representative of the year in 2019. Um, and now I'm getting ready to close out my second consecutive term as a student representative to the Board of Visitors. Okay. Um, which, in short, I'm, I am perhaps the highest and um, I don't want to say most powerful, but perhaps the most connected student advocate on campus. Mm -hmm. um, but I also hold the sole responsibility of representing all 22,000 people. Um, Let me tell y'all, this man do everything <laughs> on this campus. He do everything. What doesn't Norman Jones do? Truly. <laughs> um, I also served as the revitalizing president of Brothers of a New Direction, mm -hmm. um, which is an organization focused on connecting, supporting, and engaging our male-identifying minority students on campus. Yeah. That was a role I held my sophomore and junior year as well. Um, but all of those were informed, unbeknownst to me, by my experience with black alumni and the black mm. community here. That really fed a lot into the programming that I helped put together, um, the alumni connections that I used to make things happen. Quite honestly, sometimes you just need a little help from the outside to make mm -hmm. things work. Um, but certainly, all of those things culminated, especially within the past year, um, with me stepping even stronger into the forefront as an advocate. For black lives, like you mentioned. Um, I know I'm kind of listing off different things here, but I think one of my proudest accomplishments at JMU in advocacy for black people is the Black Leadership Coalition, mm. um, yeah. which consists of black students on our campus, black student leaders, um, some of them which officially hold titles and roles in organizations, some don't, um, but they've certainly made a mark on campus. And we've worked over the past 10 months or so um, with university administrators, decision makers, the student body, faculty, staff, employees, community members, and alumni to create structural change on our campus um, yeah. from implementing the first DEI, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, um, the first DEI training for employees yep. to, um, you know, renamed. beefing. Exactly. We renamed three buildings on our campus that formerly honored Confederate soldiers. Yeah. Um, we've revised and strengthened our zero tolerance policy when it comes to discrimination and harassment. And we're still doing more around general education courses and admissions and um, student training. So if I were to put all that in, in one box or a couple statements, um, my advocacy for black lives has been something that I've always done, but I was not always aware of. Mm. And 
it's a blessing because I think a lot of people do it the other way around. Yeah. Um, yeah. They always want to be aware of what they're doing and, and say that they're advocating in one way or another. But it's not, it really isn't something they're doing. Um, it can be a lot of show. Um, and so on our campus, I'm excited to have very seriously opened a lot of doors for black students. Not me personally, mm-hmm. but um, as just one of many leaders in this collective. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that over the next three to five years, we'll see that access continue to expand. Um, because ultimately, what I think a lot of leaders and decision makers um, in higher education or in any sort of positive change, I think they get fixated on black and brown people wanting outcomes only. Mm. Um, they think that if we get to equality, if we get to equity, if we get to affordable housing, if we get to um, affordable health care and insurance, then that's good enough. Um, I'm of the mindset that, yes, we need to prioritize those outcomes, but I think even more importantly, we need to make sure we have the door open in the first place. And we need to make sure we have people in the room in the first place because that dictates the outcome. Um, how do we know that something is equitable if we don't have black and brown people there? Right. Um, how do we know that we're really advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion if we don't have the communities affected in the room? So for me, that's always the first step um, because then we can work together to make the right decision regardless of what that is. Right. So I'm hopeful that this work is, and my work as an advocate has made that possible or more possible at least um, for students, for anyone to come really, not just students. Um, we've done a lot of work to advance it, you know, equity for everyone. So that's in a nutshell, my work as an advocate for black lives on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been exciting. There are challenges sure. <laughs> all the time, even in the wake of, um, the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. Um, certainly there were a lot more conversations being had, but mm-hmm. I realized that a lot of people were willing to talk, but yeah. then when you come up with the change part. That's where you, you hit an obstacle. Yeah. Um, we haven't had a whole lot of problems getting into rooms or having conversations with decision makers. But then when we come up with the idea, when we say, well, this is what that looks like, mm, that's where like, it's like, uh, exactly, exactly. Kinda, we don't want to do this. Yeah. Right. And some of them don't know why they don't want to do it. Now <laughs> we got to take time to unpack that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's certainly nuanced, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, being an advocate and being mm-hmm. selfless in service. Um, it's more fulfilling than any sort of outcome. I think that's the, that's the biggest part, that process of serving and helping mm-hmm. others. Um, whether the outcome is large or small, it always means more to know that I just helped in the first place. Yeah, that's really important. Um, and within your advocacy, how, how do you think that plays into black immigrants like what work if any have you touched on within that space just because when we think of immigration it kind of just goes towards the latinx community and people don't really think about caribbeans or africans um so there's that invisibility aspect there so when it comes to advocating for them in what ways have you done that if you have yeah um I think, so there are a couple specific instances I want to point out. Um, And you know this from freshman year. This is the first one I want to bring up. There was a, DACA had come under siege under the Trump administration. This was Mm -hmm. the first huge attack from Donald Trump while he was in office on DACA. Mm -hmm. Um, We knew that was a part of his campaign. Mm -hmm. But 
um, this now he had the power to to really strip this, mm-hmm. and I think he did for he a did. little while. Yeah. Um. So there was a march on campus, um, that also led to some powerful conversations. Mm-hmm. Um. Admittedly, I think some of the momentum disappeared there. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the march went, I attended. Um, I made sure to support. I know that. I went in support of you. I think you spoke at the march, even. Did you? Uh, <laughs> I didn't because um, Diego, the person at the time, oh, right. um, kind of just took the lead on that. And that was my first time being outspoken in any way. Just even being there that like, hey, this is this is me too. Yeah. Um, and that was just really like scary because I came to college and my mom, the first thing she told me was, don't let anybody know. Um, because you never know who you run into and what their intentions are with that. So just being up there on the front lines was scary enough. So, um, at that point in time, I opted not to talk, but I was just there. But that also led to some problems because people thought I was just there to help, um, before like being like, no, I am also undocumented. Um, and that's actually how like this invisibility of black immigrants came to mind, like back then, because... As mm. I was saying, it's it's pitched as a Latinx yeah. community thing, but it, it impacts far more than that. But continue. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that impact for me, it was really brought to my attention during the pandemic. Mm. Um, having known that undocumented students can't receive you know, state financial aid or even federal funds mm-hmm. when it comes to grants and access to higher education, mm-hmm. um, I still am a big proponent of diversifying our scholarships at JMU. Mm-hmm. And so I was very proud to see that unprovoked from me, I, you know, I've checked in on it since, um, but there's the Madison for Keeps campaign mm-hmm. in which donors gave money to fund students who were not covered by the CARES Act. Yep. Um, primarily DACA students. And so I think close to $150,000 were mm-hmm. raised there to help keep students at JMU. And that campaign continues to go on. Yep. Um, I benefited from that. I mean, it it was fantastic. I think for me, that's one of the highlights as far as progressive work that I've seen at JMU. Mm -hmm. And like you said, starting to mitigate some of that invisibility. Um, Another thing was at the beginning of last summer, um, I had a lot of different ideas. So beginning of, I guess, June 2020, things had started, protests had broke out across the world really Mm -hmm. about George Floyd. Um, I, because I'm connected to the JMU due to the nature of my role and really building a lot of relationships, one of the first calls I made was to our Office of Advancement, our Department or Division of Advancement. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I told, um, it wasn't directly to him, but some of the workers in the office that I knew who helped make some of the decisions was that our next Giving Day campaign mm-hmm. had to prioritize students of color and undocumented students. Mm. Every year, Giving Day has campaigns that they, you know, headline, please give to this. This is what we really want to focus on. Um, I think two years ago was the Honors College. And I felt that there was no reason why we shouldn't prioritize Madison for Keeps and programs that were in that same vein, as well as our different multicultural centers on campus. So AAAD, which is African, African American, and Diaspora Studies. Um, We have a similar uh, department for Asian and Asian American studies, Hispanic, Hispanic American studies. Um, So that was one of the first things I did over last summer. And um, I'm really proud to see that Giving Day was, what, two weeks ago or so, Um, at least from the time of recording this podcast, Mm -hmm. that um, 
a lot of money has been raised yeah. to give to those scholarships that had previously been ignored. Um, but it also goes to show that all the work that anyone does doesn't have to be super visible. And for me, that's one of the quiet accomplishments I'm really proud of. Seeing that I was able to speak up without making a lot of fuss. Yeah. Um, I don't even think I brought this up to some of the other student leaders I worked with. Yeah. I and it just, oh. it just happened. Um, so I'm really proud of that. Um, I will say some of the other work has been relational. Mm-hmm. I think that's some, somewhere I excel. So while I had some of those specific instances, um, more of it has been relational, bringing the stories of our undocumented black students to the table, making sure that viewpoint is expressed. And in situations or rooms where, for one reason or another, a student and administrator can't meet to have that conversation or share that story, um, I made it a priority of mine to bring that viewpoint to the table, especially that JMU is always talking about budgets and funding and how we don't get money from the state for this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been quite a few conversations with um, decision makers at but, JMU mm-hmm. about how you know state funding, we need that, certainly. Yeah. But that's not going to fill all the holes. That's not going to cover everything. And we need to do exactly. more with what stories are we telling our donors? Where are we putting the money that we do receive? And what are the other ways we can help our students out, especially undocumented students, right? So if we can't give them state aid mm-hmm. um, directly, are there ways that we can do programming? Yeah. Are there ways we can connect to community resources? That's good. Yeah, Let's that's start good. to use our network creatively. Yeah. And play the game a little bit. There's some things that we can't control. Mm-hmm. We can't control how much money the governor wants to give us and yeah. signs off on. But we can control is our network and our mm-hmm. alumni and the stories we tell on this campus. That is so true. Um, and so it's important, I think, to always think of those aspects and be creative. Um, so that's the work that I've done. Um, and hopefully it'll stand the test of time to try and mitigate that invisibility. Hopefully Giving Day continues to prioritize um, BIPOC issues, you know, minority issues and documented issues, um, disabled and queer issues. All of those things need a spotlight on them because otherwise they get swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people blame that on not knowing. Um, I'm of the mindset that as, as a leader, you should always do your best to make sure that your people know. Yeah. Even if they don't know now and it's not being received or receptive, do whatever you need to do to keep educating, keep informing. That's transparency. Um, and so with these new initiatives, I hope that that continues. Oh, I will also add, there's been a new cohort of professors um, added through the College of Arts and Letters. And um, I got to interview a couple of them. Tatiana Benjamin? Yes. She will also be featured on the podcast yes, in a she's, few days. So she's fantastic. Her. And in her interview, um, she brought up undocumented black immigrants. And um, it was that topic alone. I mean, she was great otherwise. Mm-hmm. But for me, I said, this is, as a student in the political science department, where she would be teaching, I believe, mm-hmm. this is not something I've ever heard or been covered. Yeah. Um, and we need that. So there have been some simpler, more cut and dry ways in which they just need students to say yes. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've certainly been the first to say so. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we'll be interviewing for a new dean of admissions. And I've yeah. already put together a slate of questions. And this is one of those things we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, interviewing our new dean. So um, there's still a lot to be done. There's still a lot to be done. And I'm glad that I've been educated to where I am now. I look forward to continue being educated on this, on this topic. Because it pertains to me too. You know, I'm black. And while I'm not an undocumented immigrant... Um, those issues still affect me. Yeah. I mean, that's what it means to be part of a community. All right. So last question of the evening. 
In regards to immigration, is there anything you wish you knew more about that could maybe like help you in your political career? Things like that? Yeah, I think certainly more policy expertise. Mm. Um, knowing what's on the table and what is to come over the next four years, certainly, with the new administration. Um, but I think also continually learning about the experience of immigrants, mm. um, whether they're documented or undocumented, um, from all different kinds of places, too. Uh, I know some of those different situations have a certain level of privilege. We know for a fact European immigrants have way more privilege when it comes to the system and mm -hmm. process of immigrating to the United States. Yeah. But learning more about those nuances on a mm. tangible level. Yeah. Um, because for me, I'm the kind of person, I want to know what do we need to tweak and adjust? How do we learn and start to make changes and adjust and keep getting better? Um, so learning more about that experience as well. Um, if I had to pick a third, um, and maybe this is the largest that I would like to know, um, and this ties to the experience, is what is the finish line? Mm. And a lot of times there isn't an answer. A lot of times there shouldn't be an answer. But as someone who was born in the United States, you know, um, I mean, I've been a citizen since birth, um, or by birth, rather, you know, mm -hmm. it's not an issue that I'm privy to in the same way that people who are immigrants are. Um, and so by virtue of that categorization, a lot of times it can be hard to figure out, well, when, when is the progress enough? Are we going in the right direction? The same way that there's a lot of confusion around black issues or queer issues or right. women's issues or any combination of the three. Mm -hmm. um, how do we know that we're doing the right thing? How do we know that we're doing enough? Um, and I don't want to get to a point where I think that I know what enough looks like, but I would like to be more informed so that I know um, how we're getting there. You know, um, more informed to know what are considered the right steps. What are what is the right mindset to have approaching this topic? Uh, to be immersed in the view of different immigrant communities in the country and in Virginia, so that hopefully, as a decision maker myself, you know, getting to be a leader, um, it's informed the right way. Right. And I also know who to call on, not who like necessarily individually, but like knowing what communities we have and, and where to go to make sure that we're being representative and inclusive. A lot of times you can find some you know, figureheads or um, symbolic leaders that might be burnt out. They're tired of speaking up. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I they, bet. It's tiring. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and so I think learning is the only way to help mitigate that, learning more about communities in a selfless way. Um, so that should you be privileged enough to elevate those voices, you know how to and how to do that the right way. So that's what I want to know. I think, like I said, on one hand, policy, a little more of the technical aspect, but even the bigger part is experience in that lived experience so that I can be a better advocate and serve others. So, Mr. Jones, I just want to thank you again for coming on to Bonafide, Immigration for the Common Man. Um, do you have anything else to say to our audience? Any promotions, advertisements, um, campaigns? <laughs> no campaigns yet. But, um, first and foremost, thank you again for having me on. I really appreciated it. This has been a great conversation. Um, and I look forward to seeing how the podcast continues to grow. 
Um, as far as information for anyone else, continue to learn, continue to be educated. Um, I mean, it's a process that we're all going through, so let's learn together. You know, why, why swim alone? So let's let's be informed. Be informed, indeed. So there you have it, folks. An amazing interview with Norman Randolph Jones III. Thank y'all so much for tuning in to this segment of Bonafide, Immigration for the Common Man. And I'll see y'all soon.